All right, we are live. This is First Draft Friday. My name is Alessandra. I'm with Authors AI. I'm here with Andy Maslin, who is a best-selling thriller author and all-around great guy. If you have not been checking out our blog at authors.ai, um, Andy has some really great content there. And he's also um, one of our featured authors in a box set called Killer Twists. So if you like thriller novels and you want to experience five amazing thriller novels, check out Killer Twist. It's available right now on Amazon and in Kindle Unlimited. So um, with that short sales field side, Andy, welcome to First Draft Friday. Can you tell everybody just a little bit about yourself? Okay, so hi, everyone. I'm really glad to be here with uh, Ali today. I wrote my first and self-published my first novel called um, Trigger Point five, five and a half years ago. And that was a part-time thing alongside my day job as a marketing copywriter. But for the last two years, I've been making enough money that I was able to go full time, which was, you know, really the dream. So I have three series of um, kind of thrillers. One is a kind of ex-Special Forces guy. One is a detective, a female detective, um, all British characters. And then this November, I'm, I have a three book deal with Thomas and Mercer, which is part of Amazon Publishing. And we have a male detective uh, who lives and works in Salisbury, which is my sort of adopted hometown. I love that. We'll have to chat later about Thomas and Mercer. I have uh, two books coming out with them next year. Oh, so cool. Yeah, they're really great. It's been really great to see their publishing process mm-hmm. throughout. Um, and today, um, Andy's going to talk with us. We're going to chit chat about um, creating amazing characters. So whether those characters are villains or heroes, um, that's what we're going to be chatting about and how to really um, how those characters can sometimes cross both lines, um, especially if they're really great characters. So um, that's what we're going to dive into. I've got a couple of questions to move through, but do not be shy. The chat box is there for a reason, whether you're joining us on YouTube or Facebook. Don't be afraid to chime in um, with any questions that you have. Um, we're going to get to as many of them as we can um, at the end of the show. But this is a half hour uh, chat, so we will... Um, Jump right in. And before we begin, or to start us off, can you, Andy, just give me your definition? Because um, a lot of times we use the word heroes or villains, but another word that you see is protagonist and antagonist. And a lot of newer authors, and I know we have a lot of newer authors as followers, don't really understand what those words mean. So can you give us your definition of what you can, uh, what you, how you would define a protagonist or an antagonist? Okay, um, let, let's do that then. And I think the first thing that I would always say, and I do a little bit of teaching myself, I know you do a lot, is that um, when we talk about hero and villain, I don't know about you, but to me, hero immediately conjures up, it's like Indiana Jones, it's an old-timey Western, it's the Audie Murphy character, it's the white hat guy, and a villain is some guy with a top hat tying a maiden to a railway track, you know, ha, 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 ha. And they're kind of very two-dimensional. Uh, and also, if you say hero, I start thinking about people being heroic and villains being villainous. Whereas the, and you know, the term protagonist from the Greek word in drama just means the main actor. Uh, and we tend to think, you know, so that's, the, that's your point of view character, really. That's who the book is about or from whose perspective it's told the story. And the antagonist is really the main person against whom they are struggling whether it's for the you know for the love interest or the the secret of the nuclear bomb or the you know it's the murder versus the cop so protagonist is the i guess in a way the one we're rooting for and antagonist is the one we're kind of against 
could you have a book with two protagonists? Like, could could you be reading? Because you know, sometimes you read a book and you're you're torn and you're reading for both sides. Absolutely, you can. I mean, the you know, not I know authors are a very non pedantic kind of place. We're much too you know friendly for that. But a lot of people say protagonist means the main actor, so there can only be one. Mm -hmm. uh, but you know. Main, you know, lots of authorities, you know, forget that. You can have a couple. I mean, typically, you know, think about Butch Sundance and the, you know, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. You've immediately got a, a pair of protagonists. But you can also, if you tell a story where you're flipping, let's say it's a psychological thriller and you're flipping between the husband and the wife, mm -hmm. um, I think it was Gone Girl that did that. Gone you know? Girl, I was say. Yeah, right. So, so when it's her, you're thinking, God, this guy's a real shit, you know, awful man, you know, this poor woman. And then you flip to his point of view. And you go, hang on a minute, she's crazy. You know, this poor guy is doing his best. And so this is kind of what we're talking about. I think this way that you, if you if you devote enough time to both your leads, let's say the, the pro and the antagonists, it's quite nice because you can tug and pull on your readers' emotions and their sympathies. I mean, ultimately, someone's going to try. I can't remember how that book ended up. I think it's quite ambiguous. But it's I know, yeah, it is. Know, Slightly more black and white stories, you know, in the end, a good guy will triumph. But I like to put him through the ring at first. And, and I like to give or her, I like to give them an opponent, if you like, who isn't just a sort of tin target in a fairground shooting gallery. You know, you just, because readers don't really care about those kind of people. I think that's a great example. And um, we're, most of this conversation will be about thrillers and actual bad guys yeah. but if you're watching this and you're like a romance reader um, I write mostly romance books I also have um, thriller books and suspense books but in one of my love triangles um, the uh, female the main character the heroine um, was married to a man and then had this other love interest or you know mm. her true love and it would could have been really easy for me to make her husband just a horrible guy right and then it would have been very clear for the reader to be like oh she needs to leave this guy he's a jerk and go be with her true love but where's the fun in that right mm. so and um, it would be it would you know it's much more emotionally taxing on the reader and I love to emotionally tax the reader if um that her husband's a nice guy and he's a great guy and he's a great husband. And then what, you know, it makes everything that all the decisions so much harder. And I think it's the same with um, good and bad guys. It's great to really push and pull your reader um, between trying to figure out who to root for and, you know, and who yeah, really I think, yeah, exactly. I mean, the, um, I, I came up with this sort of, you know, we're all very, you know, writers always like quoting other writers. I, I came up with my own quotable quote, which is, um, nobody thinks that they're the villain, especially the villain. Yeah. So, uh, you know, even a kind of ravening monster, you know, um, a serial killer who kills and eats his victims, as far as he's concerned, he's just hungry. Yeah. <laughs> what, what's the problem? You know, I, I mean, you know. Yeah. So, if, you know, you've got to, I think I read it in the book, you've got to understand at the very least why you're your antagonist you know why is the villain doing this why are they acting that way um because otherwise as i say they just become a sort of cut out character you know cardboard stand up they, they, there's no depth to them we don't really care i mean who cares whether somebody like that lives or dies right. but if, so i had um in one of my um, gabriel wolf uh, thrillers he's this sort of ex special forces guy um he's rescuing two women who've been kidnapped by chechen kidnappers 
So obviously the Chechens are the bad guys, very violent parts of the world. But we go into the mind of um, Kasim, who's the head of the Chechens, and it turns out that his wife and daughter were brutally raped and murdered by Russian soldiers when they were in the Chechen wars. And he's remembering this, this horrible moment in his life that turned him against the Russians. I mean, oh, God, Paul Gavin, of course he's doing that. But then later he has a flashback to a primary school. And this was, there was a massacre, a place called Beslan, where Chechens slaughtered, this is the kind of world I inhabit, um, a whole school, children, teachers, everybody. And you go, oh, my God, no, is, was he there? Was yeah. he doing that? Part so of that, yeah. You, you just don't know. Because, and again, because that's what real life is like. You could be a Chechen freedom fighter, and because you're swept up in the moment, you do end up doing the most horrible yeah. thing. But for you, you're fighting for your family or your homeland. And that is justification enough. And I think that's what makes, well, it starts to help you make a three-dimensional villain, to use the shorthand. I love, like, Hannah, I mean, talking back about, you know, people who kill and eat people. I mean, Hannibal Lecter, I mean, who would have thought that you would have, you know, liked that character in Silence of the Lambs. But, you know, at the end when he says I'm having an old friend for dinner and you realize he's going to eat, you know, the um, the jailer, you're like, yes. <laughs> you know? yeah. um, but uh, that kind of leads into our next question, which is like, uh, why is it important to not have all villains be villains be all bad? And we kind of covered that a little bit. But why is that um, important? Is it so the reader can... Um, empathize with them and connect with them? Yeah, I mean, I think, so So this question of empathy, there, there are sort of three related words. There's empathy, there's liking, and there's relatable. And I remember when, um, you know, we talked about this, not to blow my own trumpet, although I am quite pleased about having a, a book deal with Amazon, but my editor there, Jane, uh, said, Snellgrove said, you know, we need to have characters that are relatable. And she didn't say likable. And you see it's a lot of things like Goodreads. People say, I didn't like any of the characters. And you kind of want to say, well, you're not supposed to like them. They're all horrible. But yeah. if you don't, at the very least, relate to any of them, mm-hmm. then I think you've got a kind of a dead duck of a story. Um, and I think... You know, understand the motivations. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Understand, yeah. You need to be able to understand. And, and I mean, Hannibal is this great, character isn't he I mean in the four books that Thomas Harris wrote you know in in the first two which he didn't write chronologically but in Hannibal Rising this poor kid uh his parents are slaughtered by uh Germans his sister is as far as we can tell spoiler alert boiled and eaten (laughs) and this is what sets him on his path and he he goes to live in Paris he becomes a fantastic doctor he he his first killing spree in that book is because this horrible fish store guy is incredibly rude about his Japanese adoptive mother. So in Hannibal, we have someone who who fought for and ultimately avenged his kid sister, protected his mother. He's he's cultured. He can speak languages. He gets a job in Hannibal at this kind of uh, you know Venetian art academy because he wows them with his knowledge of Renaissance art. And he he I think it's from the the books, but you know he he really hates rude people. Don't we all hate yeah. people? Wouldn't you kind of secretly like to kill someone and eat them up, you know, for cutting you off in a traffic queue? So Hannibal is in that series. He's the protagonist and the antagonist as the series goes. And even when he's helping, say, Clarice Starling in Silence of the Lambs, he's not really the villain. The villain is Buffalo Bill. And 
Hannibal occupies this kind of weird place where he's the sort of, I think it's sort of Jungian archetypes. He's like the, the, the wise advisor from his prison cell. And he's, you know, he's playing a very complicated game. And I think ultimately you would not want to meet Hannibal in a dark alley. No. But he'd be a fascinating person to have dinner with. You know, that's the thing. Like, <laughs> a great person to have dinner with. Um, but you know, Thomas Harris clearly loved Hannibal and invested him with a very rich and fully developed backstory. And we call it a backstory; it's like it's you know scenery behind you. But it was his actual story; it was his history. And if you read that, you go, "Well, no wonder you know, no wonder he turned up like that." Um, and I think the, he has the reader's empathy, um, which means that you kind of, like you said at the beginning, you root for him, mm-hmm. even though he's, or Dexter Morgan is another one, a great example of that anti-hero um, who you kind of end up loving. You know, you, you sympathise with him. I binge watched the whole lot of Dexter. Yeah, you don't want him to be caught, right? No. Yeah. You go, oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. No one else can die. Dexter can't be caught. Yeah. <laughs> it's always. Um, so and as far as actionable like um, tips, if I'm an author and I'm writing a villain and I don't want to make them all bad, are there traps that I should avoid when I'm creating my character? Or are there are there things like backstory? Is that something I should focus on their motivations and why they are the way they are or do I give them a vulnerable side of their personality that has nothing to do with their their killing side and that's what the readers relating to what are some things that you can I would say like so my number one tip is avoid try to avoid genre cliches or stereotypes so I mean we all write in we all a lot of us myself including we write in genres and there are certain genre conventions Mm-hmm. Um, but I think there's a difference between a genre convention and a genre stereotype. So, for example, the divorced alcoholic cop is, you know, done to death. I mean, it was probably original 50, 60 mm-hmm. years ago, you know, when Dashiell Hammett was writing. But, you know, we don't really need any more alcoholic cops. And, and one of the cops I love is um, Harry Bosch, for example, Michael Connolly's uh, brilliant, you know, Harry Bosch. Because Harry drinks, but he's not an alcoholic. Is his marriage ended but you know it wasn't massively acrimonious and he and Eleanor are, are sort of okay and they co-parent Maddie but uh Bosch's vulnerability is that his mum was a prostitute who was murdered and he's incredibly sensitive about that and when it gets touched on it can really lead him to kind of act out so he is a great example I was sort of just spending a little bit more time thinking how can I give this guy some sort of vulnerability and I think, you know, that the writing school thing is give your heroes flaws and your villain virtue. But flaw can lead, a bit like the word hero, I think, can lead us into a slight kind of creative blind alley where you go, all right, so he's got to have a flaw. Mm, what's a bad thing? That he could, you, know, you know, whereas if you say, how is he vulnerable? Mm-hmm. Then that opens up kind of mental health things. And so I have a guy who has PTSD, which affects his performance on the job. You know, he's got flashbacks and things. Um, and it just kind of makes you think a little bit further. And again, you, you're really good. Wow, you know, I've never met a character like this before. I want to know more about them. As opposed to, uh, yeah, okay. That, another, yeah. You know, I mean, I don't write in this genre, but you know, the bad boy billionaire. There must be a way of avoiding this, whatever the stereotype bad boy billionaire thing. Yeah. Is. If there is, we don't do a great job of doing it because it <laughs> is. That's a great example. And and so because 
oftentimes, and I've found myself doing it, I'm writing a scene in a detective's office. And what do you have? You have somebody with a crumpled shirt who like hasn't eaten in days or, you know, he has a bunch of junk food on the table. And then suddenly you're like, wait a minute, like, yeah, you're, you're falling into stereotypes. And that's, you don't want every character to be wildly different than the norm, but your characters do need to be unique. And the same in romance, it's really easy to always have a gorgeous, you know, billionaire, millionaire is no longer good enough. It needs to be a billionaire. Yeah. um, Who's just perfect in every way. And that is so boring. um, And that's so predictable. So yeah, you want to give them some depth. Um, We had a great question from the audience. Janet asked, how do you show motivation of someone who isn't a point of view character? If you're not inside the villain's point of view, um, how can you, how can you show that? I think, yeah, okay. I mean, I guess the question then is, uh, what are we left with? If we're not left with their internal world, we don't have their thoughts, we don't have any monologue or, you know, internal uh, monologue thought, we're left with what they say and what they do. So uh, in my world, particularly with, with kind of police type things, usually the the place when a non-POV character exp- uh, explains themselves in their dialogue, so perhaps, you know, the, the cop has got the protect the perpetrator in an interview and say why did you do it you know because they've confessed or whatever and then that's again I think maybe there's a risk of straying into a kind of stereotypical way of doing it so well ever since I was a little kid and you know the Nazis invaded Germany or Poland rather and at my little sister I've always had this kind of compulsion to eat bad people all right so you know but there there is that I mean if we're going to be on ourselves and say they're not the point of view character then we're seeing them and hearing through another character the protagonist's eyes and ears what have they left behind them you know what sort of if it's again in my if it's a trail of devastation um then you could make some assumptions or, or really what happens i mean my characters are usually detectives even if they're not detective by job they're in a detecting role they're trying to figure out for example what's going on between the cia and this biotechnology company why are they so interested in Cambodia? And it turns out because they plan to drop a bioweapon on an orphanage to test it because they want to wipe out a generation of terrorists uh, as little children. And they need somewhere out of the way to test this this thing. So, yeah, I know, pretty uh, <laughs> But anyway, that's, that's what the CIA were doing in this book. And he is just picking up clues here and there, and, and he's following things. And if you find a big order for some chemicals on a website, maybe – you have your protagonist thinking aloud or thinking silently or discussing it with another non-POV character saying, what do you think is going on? Because here's what I think they're doing. And you you, you do it that way. So it's a little bit harder, I think. I mean, the, the easy way out is just to drop uh, it your head. This is a great question, Janet. I mean, really. It is. And I think my, for, my question would be, how major is this character and how important is this motivation? Mm. Because is it worth adding a second POV? Like, is it worth, you know, because that can also be a great way to sprinkle in, you know, some progression and um, dynamics in the story. But also, normally, when this is revealed, it's at the end, right? Like, yeah. you you might hate this villain, you hate this villain, and then at the end, you find out why they're the way they are in normally when the detective or when the main character figures it out. Yeah. Um, but if it does need to happen, and that is always my question, when is the best time for me to 
reveal this? Do I need to reveal it early on so that they can be rooting for this villain the whole time? Do I want them to absolutely hate this villain and then flip the tables on him? You know, what is, when is the best time to do this? And I think, um, so I think that's something to examine. And then, like you said, you can do it typically through the other characters or through finding an article and it, and oftentimes just the scenario is so our, the reader's mind can fill in the gaps. If they see a gravestone of a dead child and understand that that's, you know, they can, they can understand and they can fill in um, from there. You don't have to tell that story to death. That that yeah. Um, yeah. She's um, Janet said, thank you. Um, the, her character is a detective. Um, so I think that that's what that clip. I think she's saying that as, as a tip, if you think of your peer, I mean, unless I'm wrong, Janet, but if we think of the POV character as a detective, they're trying to figure out and maybe vocalize why they think this other person is behaving the way they are. Um, and that may be worth seeding the ideas in. Yeah. I agree. Sorry. I didn't, I accidentally hit a comment before I read it. I agree. Thank you, Janet. That was a really great question. Um, and, uh, Joylin, I, I hope I pronounced your name right. Um, made a great comment. She said, I thought it was important for your reader to like the character, but if they do things early within the story that may be flawed, like driving drunk, how do you bring your reader back to loving them? So a great question. We have, we have a bunch of great questions. Yeah. yeah go for fantastic. It. So I have a, a, an example from, uh, not my books, but Henning Mankell, the great Swedish, uh, author who, who created Wallander, Kurt Wallander, who's this sort of Swedish guy, uh, guy, he's a guy, but he's a detective. Uh, interestingly, we follow him in real time, as with um, Ian Rankin's Rebus. So Wallander starts out as a young cop, and by the end of the series, he's an old cop. Um, and there is a scene in quite early on in the series where Wallander is driving drunk, and he's caught by two cops on his station. And they basically, because the Swedes are very pure and upstanding country they say listen we should really book you in boss we're not going to we're going to let you go but and he knows that he could have been fired for that and he is and so this is a, a great question uh Julian, and he is filled with remorse and we see it and we see it again and again actually through the series where he keeps being dragged back to, you know what was i thinking my god you know i could have killed somebody and i guess the way mankel lets wallander off the hook is that he didn't actually kill anyone so maybe what he feels is shame rather than guilt. I'd need to look up the difference between those two words. But, you know, he's ashamed of his behavior because it was found out in public. But he didn't do anything that caused harm except to himself. And, and so there's this sense of redemption that he's seeking. And I think redemption is a, a very interesting word, obviously a very sort of theological word. But one of the things that I think helps with a an antagonist, you know, the villain, is they must, you as the author, have to hold out just a sliver of a possibility of redemption for the villain. Even if they're a habitual drunk driver, eventually they, you know, something bad happens. They go to prison, they get out and they start a charity or they make some form of uh, penance. Mm -hmm. And this draws on very deep-seated, even if you're not a particularly religious person, in the West you have a Judeo-Christian sort of moral framework and it taps into what we all know and understand is this this idea of forgiveness and redemption and aside from the complete slavering you know lunatic serial killer cannibal um most people are you know you think well you know he, he at least he tried 
Mm-hmm. You know, he tried to make amends. So I think it was a great question, actually, really good. And I think another thing you could do, Joylin, is um, really have a later moment in the book that's a sacrificing moment, like where that part character really does a different action to counteract, you know? Mm. Um, so if they really, like, they have drunk driving, but then maybe later they give up a huge work opportunity, but it helps someone in need or something like that, where you can be like, you know, and, and I think what Andy said is important. Like if they, if they don't, if they do something horrible and then they never think about it again for the rest of the book and they move on merrily along their way without remorse, then it's very hard for the reader to forgive them. But if they are truly contrite, you know, or, and maybe they're not initially contrite because at the beginning they're, you know, a worthless individual, but they grow and they mature and they become a better person throughout the story based on the things that happen to them in the book. And that is very common threat. That's a very common story arc, you know, like the, you know, character changing dramatically from the book, from, you know, a horrible person to a better person. Maybe not that extreme, but yeah. Okay. We only have a couple minutes left. So, um, can you give an example of a flawed hero or villain that was really well done? And we've talked about a lot of those. So we might have already kind of crossed this off the list. But is there anything you left out or anything you want to mention before we talk about um, really your process? Or should we skip ahead? Because we only have a couple minutes left. Do you want to talk about that? I mean, Hannibal is my go-to guy for the ultimate um, virtuous villain and kind of flawed hero as well. I mean, it, it, he's a master class. I mean, study... Hannibal Lecter, if you want to see how to make a bad guy feel good and vice versa. Um, what process do you use for creating a real well-rounded 3D character? Do you have a process? I do, I do. Um, I mean, I probably like a lot of people you now, I like to sort of write a character sketch. Um, I'm not very good with physical things. You know, I mean, I, I, I'm not face blind by any means, but I, you know, when people sort of say, can you visualize your character? I find that quite hard. I, I know them and I, I, I can sort of, if you know what I mean, visualize their internal world very well but you know i kind of i don't know blonde brunette doesn't make any difference to me (laughs) i sort of write i write all that down but i i tend to get really into their backstories we used that word earlier you know from child where were they born what were their parents like you know where where did they grow up how were they at school and one technique that i've used and it was kind of worked well enough i included the scene in the book was i i do an interview with the the character maybe it's like a maybe like we're doing now uh, as if I'm transcribing it. And I say, so tell me, Hannibal, you know, you've done some pretty horrible things, you know, why? You know, why do you do this? And then you just write what they'd say. And the, I think what's good about that is it forces you to adopt their point of view. And you can't say, because I'm a, because I'm the bad guy, what do you think I'm going to do? You know, plant flowers? He's going to say, well, you know, I mean, ever since I was, you know, witnessed my parents being slaughtered by not, you know, or you talk to your protagonist and, and you might say, you know, You've done a lot of good in your life, but is there anything you're maybe a little bit ashamed about that you've never really told anyone about? And you're almost being like a therapist or a psychiatrist to your uh, protagonist, inviting them to unburden themselves. And, it, you know, you never know what you're going to write. I mean, that's the mysterious part where we all have our own creative process, I think. But doing interviews with people, um, I also borrow attributes from people I've met. Um, oh, yeah. I still Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't have any friends who are cannibals, but, you know, if I did, I'd be really leaning on them. <laughs> yeah, I love that. Okay, so do you do that? First of all, are you an outliner or do you write? 
You are. I, no, I, I mean, I, I think people on pantsers and planners. You know, I, I started off, I mean, I, I've written a lot of books very fast, about 20 novels in five years. And I started off just with an idea and I kind of ran at it and then edited it into some sort of shape. When I went with Thomas and Mercer, the first thing that Jane asked me for was an outline, which ended up being about 10,000 words long. And I'd never had it so much pain in my life. But since then, I found it really useful. So I've kind of come back a bit to maybe a hybrid. I like to have a broad idea of where I'm going uh, and what are the key points you know, the, the, in the story and the setbacks. But I, I like to kind of leave it a little bit open-ended because I think that's, there's that sort of magical spark that happens when you're writing that you don't know exactly where you're going to go with it. I, uh, for those of y'all watching, um, and if you're watching live, the next First Draft Friday is going to be really fascinating. Um, we're going to talk about a really interesting and unique way to outline for maybe if you are someone like me or like Andy, that's more of a pantser by nature. But um, when, so in your process, if you typically pants, when do you do this character interview? Do you do it before you write? Do you oh, do yeah. it halfway through or? The, the, so for for the protagonist, because I write in series, um, you know, I, I've done it. I do that process basically once, and I have my sort of character bible that I refer to. Although sometimes I have to go back and read the last book because it's been a year since I wrote a, a Gabriel Wolf story, and I'm just starting one now, and I I've kind of forgotten half the things about him and what the names of his friends are and things like that. But uh, with the with the antagonist, you know, with the villain, I spend a lot of time. That's why I'm so focused on. I want to have a worthy adversary my hero so I spend a lot of time trying to figure out who this person is and you know usually on the detective side you start with the dead body dog walkers my favorite people they're always finding the dead body and I think so who was this guy what was he doing that got himself killed who killed him why did he get killed and in fact sometimes what's interesting is my train jumps the tracks and halfway through the book I go do you know what it wasn't him it was her and it doesn't really matter because I got far enough in on this one thing that I'm quite happy to sort of completely flip uh, and go with a different, you know, ending and then rework it. But I, I really need to know who the cast of characters are, my dramatis personae, before I start. Because I, when they walk on stage, I need to know who they are already. And do most of your series have a different villain for every book? Or do you have, is it one continual adversary? Uh, it's usually different i had the daughter of one antagonist come back in a subsequent book uh, and in the, the series i'm just starting with with thomas and mercer there's this kind of local family of bad guys who were totally minor characters they were just there to be next of kin and my editor said you know these are these are kind of good people you know we, well, not, they're not good, but you know they, these are interesting family we should keep them in and so I'm thinking, OK, that's great, because they're going to be a background malevolent presence throughout the series and his career. Um, not always the villains, you know, not the murderer in the case in question, but just a bit of background radiation, if you like, in his life. I love that. Well, we are already out of time and it's been a really great half hour. So thank you so much, Andy, for joining us. And if you'd like to um, try out Andy's writing, Look for Killer Twist or visit andymaslin.com and you can see all of his novels there um, and dive right in. I know I'm going to be um, – what, what's the book they should start with if they want to read you? Oh, difficult question because I always think, you know, the first books I wish I'd, I'd written better. But <laughs> Trigger Point is the, the first of one series and Hit and Run is the lady detective or the female detective. So 
maybe one of those, Hit and Run. Which one is, in, is either of those in Killer Twist? Uh, Hit and Run is in Killer Twist. Um, yeah. That's actually more like my fourth novel. So I'd say maybe start there and give me a bit of a free pass on the on Trigger Point. Absolutely. And if our team could post the link in the um, chat, that would be great for you guys. So um, if you enjoyed this chat, I hope you join us on future First Draft Fridays. They're on our YouTube channel and in our Facebook group. And if you're interested in discovering Marlo, who's an artificial intelligence who can read your novel and provide almost instant feedback on the plot, characters, pacing, and a whole lot of really cool stuff, check out authors.ai. You can run a free report there or look at her um, her per report, which is the um, crown jewel. So that's Authors AI. This is First Draft Friday. Thank you guys for joining us and we'll Thank see you. you in two weeks. Bye. Thanks, honey.